Hi there, and welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. Now, today on the show, John is joined by Adam Coffey, who spent 21 years as a CEO of three national service companies backed by nine private equity sponsors. During this time period, he completed 58 acquisitions and generated more than $1 billion of value at exit. Adam's books, including the Private Equity Playbook, are all bestsellers. And in this episode of Inside the Mind of an Acquire, Adam teaches a masterclass on how private equity works. Without further ado, let's jump right into today's episode with Adam Coffey. Enjoy. Adam Coffey, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. John, good to be here. Thank you for having me. Hello to all your listeners out there. This is a super treat for me because I've followed you on social. I, I know the three books very well. and I'm, I'm so grateful for you taking a bit of time to share your wisdom about private equity with our listeners and viewers. Give folks a sense of how you became like one of the world's experts at private equity. How does this all come about? You know, four things about me kind of that, that informed my life and brought me where I am today. And, you know, first is I, I served, you know, serving in the military. Um, military, a U.S. Army veteran, military taught me something about teamwork, discipline, leadership. Um, from there, I, I was an engineer. Engineering made me a meticulous planner. And then I'm a pilot. Pilots don't take off unless we know where we're going. And that actually taught me how to deconstruct, call it a private equity hold period, right? So I know I start with the end in mind and then I, I create the value creation plan and I deconstruct the hold period. Um, and, and so then I went to GE. I spent 10 years at GE in what I call the Camelot era. So, <laughs> so Jack Welch is at the helm. Tech doesn't exist yet. And GE is fortune number one on the fortune 500 list. And the company is growing so fast. It's doubling in size every 2.8 years. And so GE taught me how to run a business, but they also informed me on how to think about growth and what's the right growth rate that I should, should seek to achieve you know, as a, a CEO. And then I spent 21 years as a CEO building three different national companies for nine different private equity sponsors. Uh, buy and build guys. So I bought 58 companies, put them together, um, two and a half billion dollars in uh, in CEO exits. And then I got bored. You know, I just, I got bored. You know, I was tired of just running one company at a time and building one company at a time. After 21 years, I'm thinking it's got to be more to life than just keep on doing the same thing. I want to impact a lot of companies at, at one time. And so I, I had been teaching at UCLA um, you know, I, I do have multiple books. And so I had written my first book, The Private Equity Playbook. It was doing really well. And I really enjoyed giving back. And so I'm like, okay, made a lot of money doing CEO stuff, but not really having fun anymore and need a new challenge. Love teaching and giving back, but, you know, wasn't really making a bunch of money doing that. So I'm like, how do I switch this around? So I, uh, I started a consulting business, you know, and I, I work with private equity firms today and uh, help them evaluate investments. I help them identify risk. And when I'm teaching seminars or I'm working with founders, I help them eliminate risk so that when the PE guys come call and come look and you know, they, don't, they don't see the risk and the company sells for maximum value. So I, I'm, uh, I'm having a lot of fun. That was the, that was the whole idea. And 
you know, I'm, I'm working more hours, I think, than I ever did as a CEO now. So again, it was never about slowing down or anything like that. Yeah, and I'm, that's a guy that worked for Jack Welsh, who's known for <laughs> being a relentless worker. So you right. must uh, keep a pretty busy schedule. Uh, for our listeners, what is a private equity sponsor? Like sponsor, I think of T-ball tournaments. Like what sure. do you mean by a sponsor? So, um, you know, it's just private equity lingo, let, let's say. So a private equity firm has multiple funds inside, you know, that they're managing, um, you know, private equity firm could be really, really big, like K- KKR or Apollo or Carlisle or Blackstone, or they could be just a small, you know, small family office with a small fund. But, you know, when I say sponsor, it's, it's that when, when your phone's ringing out there, you know, and, and you're like, okay, you know, it's another PE guy or lady on the other end, or it's a buy side advisor looking for companies for a, you know, PE firm. It's like, so when I say sponsor, I mean, it's a PE firm whose fund is buying your company and they become your sponsor. You know, they're your backer, you know, they're your checkbook and it's, you become a portfolio company um, that's owned by a private equity firm. And as your sponsor, they're there with their checkbook, their capital, and and working with you alongside and, and, and working to grow the business, you know, to some exponential, you know, degree over a relatively short period of time so that they can uh, they can sell it. And- it's interesting, you know, I key on the word sponsor because, it, you know, when you think about you know, the opera has a sponsor, the, the as I said, the T-ball team has a sponsor and they're kind of, you know, they're there to facilitate the team or the organization and make it all possible. And I think that's an interesting distinction because when business owners think about selling their company, they're thinking about selling their company. Like they're thinking about leaving, right? Golf course, beach, they're not thinking about growing it necessarily to the next level and selling to a private equity group where they are in their mind sponsoring you is a different kind of exit because they're not asking you to walk away. In most cases, a majority recapitalization, they're saying, we in fact want you to stick around and grow this thing. And we want you to work harder than you ever worked before. And so, yeah, yeah so, so it's cute. Yes, I just was thinking of this when you were saying that. So sponsor, right? So so I see, pri- yeah, I'm an operator. I'm a guy who built companies. And I see private equity as a tool. You know, they're a tool. They're my sponsor. I'm growing a business. And in my world, you know, I mean, I, I've grown, built, grown billion dollar businesses. And so, you know, on the journey that I'm on, I'm going to need massive amounts of capital and I'm looking for a sponsor, someone who's going to be my owner for a a set period of time. And as I'm growing the business and working with them, pretty soon I'm going to kick them out. Time for you to go and time for me to bring in the next group. And so I see them as a tool. They're my they're my tool to wealth creation. They see me as a tool. I'm their I'm their. I'm their tool that they use for shareholder value creation and, and investor returns. And so it's, it is kind of this symbiotic relationship between, you know, sponsor. They don't come to run the company. They come with a checkbook and, you know, they're backing me. That's why I call them a sponsor. They're, they're, they're backing me as they're my sponsor. They're, they're going to be alongside me for the next five years as we're riding off into the sunset to grow the business. And you mentioned something else I want to key in on real quick too. Yeah. So most founders see an exit as a one and done event. 
It's like they see it as the end. It's the culmination. And I, I, I tell founders, it's like, why sell a great company once when you can sell it twice or three times or four times or in my personal record, five times in 13 years and four months? It's like you can actually sell the business, create asset diversification, take take about 70 cents on every dollar in sale price, take it home, pay some taxes, give it to your wealth management team, let them invest it, give you asset diversification, roll 30 cents forward, start working with a partner, and you're using their checkbook, and you can get aggressive again because you're spending with someone else's money now, and you can start making good business decisions again. You don't handcuff yourself because, hey, I'm 50 and I'm going to retire soon, and I don't want to ruin this asset that I just built. So I start making bad business decisions. I get ultra conservative. So I, I can sell the company. I can get asset diversification, and I become a minority shareholder right now. That's another concept that is hard for entrepreneurs to grasp. So the first concept is don't see an exit as a one and done event. It's just a wealth, you know, it's a rest stop on a wealth creation highway. It's the first rest stop and you can do this multiple times. And so if I give you a wheelbarrow full of gold, remember I bought 58 companies. So I give all these entrepreneurs a wheelbarrow full of gold. If they go home, first thing they have to do is figure out what am I gonna do now? And I gotta recreate the wheel. And I'm like, don't go, stay. You know, become a rollover investor in the mothership. And as I buy another 23 companies and put them together, we're going to create, you know, we're a bigger empire that sells for a higher multiple. We're going to create arbitrage. You're going to get a piece of that as a shareholder. Your second check will be bigger than the first, your third bigger than the second. You know, if we do our work right, we do it together, you know, as those private equity firms are coming and going, you know, we're getting these wealth creation events and uh, it can be really fun and it can be it, it can be special. So don't think of it as a one and done event. Think about the potential. And, and then the, for the people out there who say, God, I don't want to be a minority shareholder. I don't I, I've never had a boss in my life. No one's going to tell me how to run this company. <laughs> if you're not watching yeah. Adam, he's thumping his chest. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I'm like, just remember two names, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. Why should I remember those two names? Because they're the two richest dudes on the planet. And one owns 10.9% of his company and the other one owns less than 13%. And if the richest guys on the planet can be a minority shareholder, so can you and you can make more money too. Well said, but I want to break down the playbook. So let's just, for, for folks who maybe haven't been as intimately you know, aware of how, you know, how the model works, let's just break it down. So take me into the into the into the boardroom into the mindset of the private equity group when they identify an industry where they want to play let's say they're doing a roll up of hvac companies for example or plumbing companies or veterinary clinics what's the playbook so typical playbook is i want to identify and find what's called a platform investment or a platform company so i i've spent time researching an industry you know it meets my criteria which means it's highly fragmented. And why that is important is just simply because if there are 40,000 HVAC companies in the US or 50,000 veterinarians in the US, it's so fragmented that there's not enough buyers to buy all of these small companies and the prices to be paid for the individual small, small businesses will be low. 
But, you know, so here's some quick statistics. In the United States, there are 33 million small companies just in this country. But globally, there's only 3,000 that have a billion dollars in revenue, 2,000 of them public, 1,000 private, which means that as little companies get bigger, they become rare very quickly as you're climbing the pyramid. And, and so bigger companies are worth more than smaller companies. And so that's a basic tenant that the PE firm you know, is going to embrace. I'm going to start with a platform company. I'm going to find a good company you know, run by good people because I don't want to buy a, a fixer-upper. Life's too short for that. Let's buy a good company, partner with a good entrepreneur, a good person, and I'm going to give them their liquidity event and then make them a rollover investor so that we're aligned. So when, when I exit, they're going to get a second bite of the apple. They're going to be happy. You know, and I'm going to get them to work hard alongside me as a private equity firm. And now I'm going to become their partner and I'm going to help them with growth strategy and I'm going to help them solve for, for capital needs. And, and it's not just the, the bank, you know, the checkbook that I bring to the table, but it's also the relationships with debt providers that I've got. And so we're going to work together over about a five year period and we're going to work on growing organically. And so selling more stuff. You know, and we're going to we're going to focus on raising prices. So what's better than selling more stuff It's selling more stuff at a higher price. And then we're going to focus as we get bigger on margin improvement by creating operating leverage. We get bigger. Hey, if I'm that plumber you're talking about and I've got 500 vehicles, I'm getting a better deal buying 500 vehicles than I am when I was buying five or six. And so I'm creating operating leverage as I'm getting bigger. I'm collecting companies. I'm adding them. And then at some point. I'm going to have to exit as a, as a PE firm. So, so let's just talk real quick about PE in general. So everyone knows what a mutual fund is. You know, I can go on my E-Trade account, my Schwab account. I can buy, I can buy a share in a, in, a, in, a, in a mutual fund today. There's like Morningstar rating systems that tell me a good fund from a bad fund. And I have instant liquidity. It's a public stock. I can buy and sell it at will every day, any day, or I can hold it for 50 years. Um, I have liquidity. So private equity is very much like a mutual fund, except for there is no liquidity. It's private. That's why it's called private equity. So minimum investment size, about $5 million. Uh, so I have to be an accredited investor. Majority of the money invested in private equity comes from you know, university endowments and from uh, public pension plans. And Adam, I just want to stop you for one second. You're referring to limited partners as opposed to Correct. Correct. So, so the PE firm, the typical PE firm, you know, does not have capital. They have they have management of capital, and so they have to raise capital. So they're raising capital in five million dollar minimum size chunks from pension funds and from um, college and university endowments. You know, people who've got money in longer term investment horizons. I take all that money. I have ten years to invest it. And so generally, you know, the I call it the tide flowing out and the tide coming back. It takes 10 years. During the first four or five years of the fund's life, I'm buying companies. In the middle years of the fund, we're buying other small companies, doing add-on investments. We're growing them. We're improving operations, working with our partners, our former owners, you know, who used to be independent. We're building a bigger company. And then towards the tail end of that fund's life, we're selling these companies because we have to return the liquidity or the money back to our limited partners. They, they, they haven't seen it for 10 years. They invested with us because we doubled the S&P 500 on average as a PE firm. We're, we're giving great returns. 
And so we got to return all this capital. So it's about a 10-year lifespan for a PE fund and a, a, a company, you know, when the phone rings and they're looking to buy us, it's either to make us a platform investment you know, of a fund or to be an add-on investment to another company that's bigger that we already own that is our platform investment and we're doing add-on acquisitions to get bigger. And so it's, it's you know, essentially private equity is a, a large pool of institutional capital that's raised from limited partners. As the PE firm, I'm the general partner and I'm making all the investment decisions. I've got 10 years to put the money to work to build the companies and then return the capital to my limited partners. And so that's kind of what it is, what it's doing, how it works. And, uh, you know, when it works well, it's, it's a big industry now. When I, I first started as a CEO, there were about 1,400 uh, PE firms in existence. There was about 800 billion in assets under management. Today, you're over 6 trillion in assets under management, 8,000 firms or more. And, uh, and, and so the, the asset class has just gotten huge. Today, they buy and sell, you know, over 50% of all companies bought and sold on the planet. Wow. So if I'm a, an endowment for a university and, and I say, okay, I'm going to go give uh, whatever, 10 million bucks to this private equity group over here. I'm going to give it to them for 10 years. To, to What am I hoping? What's, what's a successful amount of money that I get back if I give them 10 million? What would be a, like they expecting after 10 years? So... If I were to take that 10 million and put it in the stock market over a 30 year period, I would average somewhere around seven to 8% return per year. Um, in the world of private equity, I'm looking for double that. I'm looking for about 16 to 20%. And of course, I don't always get those type of returns. Sometimes it's less, sometimes it's more, but a top quartile or, or the top 25% of PE firms out there, um, funds are rated just like like mutual funds are rated by Morningstar. There, there, there's other services that rate rate PE funds, and, and so you know a, a top quartile or the you know top 25 percent of PE firms and funds out there are probably returning somewhere between you know 16 and 25 percent, you know depending on where they fall in that that framework. And uh, and so I'm getting better than an S and P 500 style return. I'm giving up liquidity, so I I, I, I tie up that money. I'm not going to see it for up to 10 years but I'm getting a double market return. So if I'm like a, a public pension fund, I have short-term obligations, pensioners I have to pay who are already retired. So I have to keep liquid assets out. But I've got younger future retirees that I'm gonna have to pay for you know, down the road and I have a longer horizon to invest and I need higher returns in order to, to, to meet all my obligations. So I'm looking for, I'm seeking alpha, I'm looking for higher returns than I can get in the stock market. And private equity as an asset class has become one of those places where I can invest my capital. Okay. I want my listeners to hear this because when you get approached by a private equity group, know that they're trying to grow the value of your business by combining it with others, improving margins and so forth. 20% a year and or 16 to 20, 25. Like that's what they're trying, trying to do because they could give the money to the stock market and get seven or eight points a year over a 30 year horizon. Or they could give it to a private equity manager who's going to try to grow it. So that's, I think, one thing that they need to understand is that, that for this all to work, the private equity company needs to 
grow value, call it 16 to 25% or whatever, you know, roughly that space, much more than a publicly traded stock would do that. So Adam, how do they do that? Like, you know, what's the playbook for improving the value of the businesses that they acquire? So my playbook really been the same my entire career. And it, and it has those three elements I already touched on. So I, I, I'm seeking to grow the business at a faster pace organically than it had been historically growing, you know, growing at. And I, I call it price volume pivot. So I, I, I want to, most companies that I get into um, have a ton of room to further optimize price. And so, you know, if I walk into a contractor's business and I say, look, if I raised every bid you put out last year by $1, do you think you would have lost any bids? And, and the answer is no. Of course, you know, I'm doing $10,000 jobs, $50,000 jobs. Yes, I could have raised my prices a dollar and I wouldn't have lost a single bid. Great. Let's find that place where if I do add one more dollar, I do get no as the answer. And let's get right to that breaking point, you know, and uh, and so we have to learn how to optimize price. And then, you know, a volume. It's like, you know, what does our sales effort look like? What is the potential to to become more aggressive from a sales perspective? Um, you know, can we add more volume and and on top of that, add price? And, and then I have this thing I call pivot. What's pivot? Well, the hardest thing for customers to do or for, for, for a, a company to do is to find a customer. Once I find a customer, can I sell them something else? You know, and can I can I create a suite of products and services or recurring needs that that I can fulfill? And then, you know, so like let me give you a great example. Let's use pest control. So I'm here in Texas. I got giant bugs that you could put a saddle on and in the summertime. It's like, it's like, oh my God, you know, it's like they'll scare you, you know, half to death. But you know, I have this pest control company, not one because I don't like bugs. I've got two pest control companies and I sign a contract. That contract never expires. It's recurrent revenue. It's month to month. It just goes on forever. They've got my credit card. And so, you know, they charge me every month, which keeps the price low, but they only come out once a quarter and they come out once a quarter and they spray around my house. And then they tell me, hey, Adam, you know what? We got giant mosquitoes here in Texas, too. So I can add a different service. And now I can, I can charge you a second fee. And I'm going to come out with a different truck, different dude. And I'm going to start spraying for mosquitoes. And, oh, hey, Adam, you know, I, you know there's also termites here. And so that, that's not really covered by perimeter stuff. So that's a third contract. And, <laughs> hey, you know what? Your lawn looks a little green over there, but it's a little yellow over there. And I peeled back your side. And there's army worms over there. It's like, that's, I got to spray your grass. That's another contract. That's another fee. You know, and so it goes on like that. Or I'm a landscape maintenance company. It's like, okay, so I'm mowing your grass. But you know what? I can also remulch your beds and I can do your sprinkler repairs and I can do your holiday lights. And it's like all these different things that I can, can sell that central customer. And if I can do it with a recurrent revenue contract, then my revenue streams are secure. And instead of looking for a new client, you know, to replace an old stream, a new client becomes additive because the old client hasn't left. I've got a contract and they just keep on needing my bug spray, you know, or my, my landscape maintenance. And so I find all these ways to grow organically. Maybe I do something the entrepreneur wasn't doing. Hey, you know what? You're looking pretty good here in Dallas, but let's open up in San Antonio. Let's open up in Houston. Let's go to Oklahoma City. 
Let's go to San Antonio. Let's open five more branch offices, something you might not have thought of doing. You were content with the growth rate of your business, but now you got my checkbook. Let's let's start expanding faster. So the point I wanted to make here was that it's not just inorganic. It's not just buy a bunch of companies and put them together. Although I'd say that that's probably the biggest value creation lever there is because it's really efficient. If you take the last company that I built, I bought 23 companies and put them together and stuck them on top of my platform or the company I started with, which was a little bigger. And I buy 23 small companies. and On average, I paid five times earnings for each one of these small companies. But when I put them all together, combined them, I created operating leverage. I was growing organically. We made our strategic pivots, price, volume. We had worked to improve our margins. And, and then I sold it for 14 times. And so for every dollar of revenue or earnings that I bought and paid $5 for, I now sold it for $14. I borrowed 100% of the money to buy these 23 companies from banks. The, the cash flow of the businesses I bought serviced the debt that I was required to use to pay. I got $9 of profit on every dollar of, or of earnings that I bought. And so I'm making hundreds of millions of dollars in profit because I have a big checkbook or I've got debt relationships with banks who will give me a disproportionate amount of capital for the size company that I am. And it's like, this is the playbook. This is the script. And this is the script that is being played over and over and over again you know, every day in, in a bunch of different industries, you know, all, all around the globe. And it works. And so what we get as entrepreneurs, we get to ride the coattails of what is probably the world's most sophisticated asset class, who's been more than doubling the S&P 500. And, and I can sell my business, be a rollover investor, get diversification, ride their coattails and get second paydays or third paydays. And the combination of all of those paydays creates what I like to call generational wealth. And so instead of one stop, one and done sale of company, two or three, you know, wealth creation rest stops later, it's like, boy, this money's piling up and it's like life is good. You know, we can and I can build a cool company with a great culture that takes care of employees, you know, uh, uh, along the way too. So I want to dig in a little bit on the the second and third. You mentioned second and third. I know one of the kind of euphemisms the private equity group refer to as the second bite of the apple. So for my listeners, again, you, you sell whatever, 70% of your business, you roll over 30 and, and ideally that 30 then ultimately becomes uh, liquid when the private equity group sells to uh, whoever is going to own the business five, seven, 10 years down the road. Um, Probably another private equity firm. (laughs) Likely another larger, because these guys do operate in revenue bands, right? Like some private equity groups, like businesses that are 600 million to a billion, others like six to 60 million. I mean, there are, there are five layers to the private equity pyramid. And, you know, if you keep in mind that all of these firms have about five years to build their investments and then sell them. During this 10-year lifespan of the fund, you know, it's like they don't have 10 years because they don't find all the companies to buy on day one. It, like, it may take them a few years to find the, the, you know, a good company and then buy it. And so they have a 10-year window with which to own a company for about five years on average. And, and so the amount of growth I can get done in that five-year period 
And the size of the PE firm that I am and the size funds that I raise dictate the size of company that I buy, the size I build, and the size at which I sell. And capital is very disciplined. And it's going back and forth in these five layers, looking for things to buy at the bottom of its band, take it up to the top of its band, sell it upstream to the next PE size groups that are looking at the lower, my upper is their lower. And, and this goes on five times between startup and public company. And what are the five layers? So think of it this, this way. If you think of it in terms of EBITDA, you know, which is really how the pyramid is wired. You know, most companies are bought and sold as a multiple of, of EBITDA. Um, you know, so earnings, earnings before we buy stuff. That's how I describe EBITDA. Um, so zero to 15 million is the traditional bottom layer of the pyramid. 15 to 50 million is the next layer. And then 50 to 100 is the third. 100 to 200 is the fourth. And 200 to public company exit is the fifth. And now, because so much capital has been coming in to private equity, <clears throat> not enough good companies to buy, there's been some flexing down of these swim lanes, I call them. And so people who used to buy at 15 now will buy as low as 10. And instead of selling at 50 now, because the five years are starting lower, they don't get as far. Now, maybe they're selling at 40. And people who used to buy at 50 are buying at 40. And maybe they're not getting to 100, they're getting to 80. You know, and so all of these private equity pyramid levels have kind of flexed down just a little bit. And what you have right now is, you know, just right this second while we're talking, there's 1.9 trillion in committed capital looking for stuff to buy. Not enough good stuff to buy. So it seeks, it seeks something smaller. It goes down the food chain looking for a good deal that hasn't yet fully matured. I'm going to buy green bananas because I know eventually they'll become yellow bananas if I put them on the shelf long enough. So the playbook is, first of all, organic growth, price, volume, pivot. Got it. There's also an acquisition piece because bigger companies get better multiples and there's an arbitrage there, right? You buy yes. five, you sell for 14, and that's, that's the, the idea. And it's a combination of these three levers. So it's the organic, the margin improvement, and the inorganic or the m and I'm, I'm, I'm building a cocktail. These are my three ingredients, and I'm looking for 30%. You know, that's what I'm looking for. If I am growing at, a, at earnings at a compound annual growth rate of 30%, my company will double in size in 2.8 years. It will triple in size in 4.2 years. It will quadruple in size in just over five years, which is the typical PE hold period. So with no multiple you know, uh, accretion, like the multiple hasn't expanded just because I, I've gotten bigger. If I just ignore that, I'm still going to get to a great return if I can hit a 30% growth rate. And so my, my usual formula is I'm looking for 10, 12, 14% organically, you know, whatever I can, can maximize that at. Give me three or four points of margin improvement along the way. And then I'm going to bring it home. You know, I'm going to round out my 30% growth rate by, by buying other companies. And which equates to, ultimately a higher multiple down the road. You buy at five and sell at 14. Yes. And all of that activity guarantees, you know, that I'm going to, I'm going to hit my return. I'm going to exceed my return profiles. You know, and so if, if I can't quite get there, um, you know, the arbitrage on the, the small companies I buy and add together. So just to give you an example, how fast this can happen too. last platform, you know, last big company that I built, I bought eight companies in the first three years and sold it. And it was a 4x multiple of invested capital and you know, really good returns. Everybody was happy. 
And then I bought 15 companies in the next two years. And so it's also like a train leaving the station. It's like as you start down this road and you get good at it and better at it, the, the train starts to pick up steam as it's leaving the station. And so growth actually accelerates over time. You know, it, it, what's hard to get the pump primed and, you know, the entrepreneurs learning about these concepts potentially for the first time, you know, and then as they learn them and start to execute, the train starts moving. And before you know it, growth is happening at a very fast pace. Um, let's talk about what happens when a, an owner rolls some equity. So let's just use an example where uh, there's an HVAC company. Uh, five million in revenue, million dollars of EBITDA. HVAC company gets acquired by a private equity group. The private equity group buys seventy percent, asks the owner to roll thirty percent uh, and invest in in the uh, in in the deal. In your model, are they investing in their business going forward as a separately held legal entity? Or are they investing in the mothership, the the entire um, organization that is being set up to, to to kind of lace together all these businesses? So, so just to be technically accurate, you're always going to sell 100% of your company. You're going to roll 30% of your proceeds on a pre-tax, you know, on a tax deferred basis into stock of the mothership. And that's where you get to participate in the arbitrage. So if you're the first company I buy in my buy and build, you know, and I add to my platform, which I already had, then you roll over into the new mothership. And then I go buy seven more companies and I buy them all for five times, just like I bought you. But then we sell it for 14 times. You are sharing in a percentage of, you know, depending on how much money you rolled over and how big the mothership is, you are getting a piece of the arbitrage on every subsequent company that we're buying. And because ultimately as we get bigger, we trade for a higher multiple, you're also getting a piece of the increased growth that came from organic or price or volume or pivot and the margin improvement. And so you are participating in every, every phase of the wealth creation that's going on. And so the, uh, the, the PE firms, want you to become a rollover investor because they want to align their interests. Look, they just gave you a wheelbarrow full of gold. They don't want you to check out or decide you don't need to work very hard anymore. So they want you to roll over enough to where life remains interesting for you. And there's the prospects of another payday that's bigger than the first. And so they're willing to give away some of the returns that ultimately would go to their shareholders or to their, their limited partner investors. They're willing to give some of that away to you to keep you on the reservation, to align you so that you'll work hard to create their limited partner shareholder returns. You know, and so it's, it's, they let you ride their coattails. They want you to ride, they'll demand you ride the coattails. You know, and, and so as you, as you participate and learn about this and experience it you know, first, firsthand, all of a sudden it clicks, everything clicks. You know, and it, 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 it can be a, a beautiful thing from a, a wealth creation standpoint. You mentioned lenders, and I want to dig into lenders. So in, in, in your example, where you went, you bought for five and you, you sold for 14, uh, you had a debt facility. Um, talk a little bit about the debt. So in particular, who owns the, the like, 
who owns the recoil? Like who, if, 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 if it doesn't go well, what happens? So there is no personal guarantees. You know, when you're a small entrepreneur in today's world, especially, it's very hard to get credit without putting up some kind of a personal guarantee. Once you sell to a private equity firm, you know, or, or sell to their company, you know, which is a strategic, you know, it's a platform and you're an add-on to that company owned by private equity. Once you sell and cash, you know, cashed out your 70% of your chips and rolled 30% forward, there are no more personal guarantees, you know, and so the, by, by, and this is what I mean when I say it's, it, you know, private equity brings to the table, not just their checkbook to buy you, you know, or the initial company, but they bring debt relationships. And so, they're able to borrow because these firms are big and they own many companies at a time. You know, they're, they're a huge source of, of lending for the banks. And so the banks are in the business of lending money to earn interest and to that's how they make their money. And so the PE firms like, hey, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a firm that owns 50 companies and all 50 of my companies are going to be buying other companies. And I have a three and a half billion dollar current fund, but I've got a total of you know fifty billion in assets under management. And that bank is like they see them as a very secure potential partner to put a lot of money to work. And because we know it's going to be sold every five years, I even know I'm it's not even long term debt. I'm going to be loaning money, and I'm going to put in place little breakup fees, and I'm going to charge all kinds of fees when you get my money. And if you pay it off early, you're going to get I'm going to get more fees and and every time there's a recap and one private equity firm sells to another, you know, one firm pays off my debt, the next firm needs money and I lend it to them again. And, and so it's like I've got all these chances to loan money, generate fees and, and earn interest. And so the banks love doing business with private equity firms. And there are no more guarantees by individuals because the private equity firms are large institutional shareholders. They don't give you know, personal guarantees, you know, the chairman, you know, of uh, General Motors doesn't give a guarantee to the bank when they they borrow money and the PE firms don't give personal guarantees either. It's secured by the assets of the company and the companies that are bought. And so it uh, it gets you out of the debt game forever and gets you out of the personal guarantee game forever. But is it secured against the business you sold or the mothership? Again, let's say you've stitched together five HVAC companies. Is the has the bank got recourse or collateral on all five or just the one you sold? Uh, all five. All five. It, it, so it's the entire enterprise of assets. Remember, you no longer own the company. So it's not your assets. You know, you you cashed out your chips, you sold one hundred percent of your company. You did become a rollover investor and you bought stock in the new mothership. So in essence, that debt is now you are a partial owner of that debt, along with any other entrepreneur that sold it, along with all the limited partners who invested in the PE fund and the PE firm. And it's like, you know, everybody owns a piece of the risk. Risk never goes away. But who guarantees the risk, you know, is uh, is is uh, is is what changes. And so. If the company were to default, and that's why you know people talk about private equity and, and and they have a sense that PE firms overburden companies with with interest payments and debt. So let me just say the typical model is around fifty percent equity and fifty percent debt on the platform company, the first company bought, and then if I'm buying smaller companies and bolting them on, and I can get them for five times, I'm seeking 
you know, hoping that the debt that I need, the interest can be served by the cash flows of the companies that I'm buying. And so I'm leveraging debt in that case. Um, but if you think about that original company that I bought with 50% equity, 50% debt, think of the average homeowner in America today. You know, if you walked into a bank and you said, I'm buying this house and I'm putting 50% down, most Americans would feel really great about the amount of equity they have in their homes. Many homeowners have like 5% equity or, or 10 or 15. You know, a lot of banks today in a conservative world ask for 20% equity, but that means there's 80% debt leverage. And so, you know, a, a, a PE firm that has 50% equity you know, in a business that they buy, that's not over levered. You know, it, yeah. it, it's, it's really not. Adam, do you know how a private equity uh, group's partner, like if I'm a, if I'm a partner in a private equity group, obviously you, you laid out some names, KKR, Apollo or, or BlackRock are, are obviously massive examples, not really playing in the lower end of the pyramid that we're talking about today. But if I'm a, if I'm a partner in a small boutique private equity group, how am I compensated? So there's multiple ways. Um, it, it, I'm going to talk about two, two, two concepts. Remember these numbers, two and 20. So when I'm a PE firm, you know, uh, my job is to go out and raise capital from limited partners. I'm the general partner. I create a fund. Now, let's say that fund has $100 million inside it, and I'm going to charge the, the people who invested their money into that fund, a 2% management fee. Now, normally I don't send them a bill for 2% every year and I don't take it out of the, 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 the capital that they're giving me to buy companies. I get it from the cash flow of the companies that I bought. And, and, I'm, and so I, I'm charging a 2% management fee. That 2% management fee is what I call a keep the lights on fee. So that's how we pay our salaries. That's how we pay for the electricity and for the fancy office we got in New York and, and the, the, the marketing material that we generate and, you know, and our cars and our travel and our hotel bills. So 2% management fee is how we keep the lights on. That covers all of those base costs. How we generate wealth as a partner in a PE firm is for every dollar that I generate in profit you know, for a limited partner, I charge them a 20% fee, you know, and it's called the carried interest fee. And so I, I charge them a 20% premium. So it's like, hey, I just earned you a million dollars. I'm going to keep 200,000 of it. You're going to get 800,000. And guess what? That 800,000, you know, when I say the average PE firm returns double the S&P 500, that's after I've paid the 20% fee, you know, to the, the PE firm. That's, that's net of fees. They're getting very good returns. And so, the, the wealth of the, the partners is created by doing a good job, picking good investments, helping those companies grow, and then selling them for a higher price and returning the money to the shareholders less that 20% fee. That's where I generate my wealth as a PE, you know, PE firm partner. And when do I get paid? You mentioned a 10-year whole period on a lot of funds, right? So if I'm, if I'm responsible for the ABC fund at XYZ, PE firm, and you know I've got a salary, I've got uh, I've got bills to pay. I'm assuming that's coming out of the the two percent that basically you have to live within your means, and so you have a salary, a competitive salary for your level within a PE firm, and so you're spending based on that. Your piece of that that 
that upside, that carried interest. You know, normally what happens is, again, when a PE fund starts, it's got 10 years to live. Doesn't buy 10 companies or 12 companies on day one. It may take five years to find 10, 12 good companies. And so it's buying, it's calling capital from limited partners as it finds opportunities. And then the money is being invested. And then as soon as the money's invested, I can now access, call it this 2% management fee every year that keeps me paying my rent, you know, in, uh, in Midtown Manhattan. And, and, and so now though, you know, as I'm growing these individual <coughs> companies, so I bought one the first year, one the second year, two the third year, four the third, you know, fifth year, whatever. It's like, as I'm, as I'm buying stuff, and then I've got about a five-year window to improve these companies, as I'm selling them, then I am deducting the 20% as I'm making the returns back to the shareholders so, so, or the limited partner investors. And so what happens is if I'm an investor in a PE fund, which I am in several, during the first five years, the tide's rolling out. So I'm writing checks. I'm, I'm wiring money every time they buy a company. Adam, you know, capital call, you owe us this much money. And I keep wiring it out. And so the tide's rolling out. All the money's flowing away from my hands. And then after you know, the first companies start, all of a sudden it shifts, the tide shifts and it starts coming back in. And now as a company is sold, I'm getting a wire from the PE firm. And now I'm getting more wires and more wires as they're selling all the companies that they bought. So first five years, I'm, I'm sending them money. Second five years, they're sending me money. And as they're sending me money, they're taking their fees out and they're paying themselves their fees. Amazing. Great uh, summary. I was like, knowing how the other person on the other side of the negotiating table is personally compensated because it, i think it says a little bit about their motivation well see again remember something they want us aligned they bought our company they they gave us a chance to buy stock in the new mothership we're now aligned when they make money i make money because me as the former owner i don't pay 20 percent of these management fees sure you know so they i own stock they own more stock than I do because they're the majority shareholder. But all of the returns that go to their investors is coming out of their portion of the stock, not mine. So I don't pay any of these fees. And so I get 100% of my return when, when the company is sold. They keep 20% of the return for themselves, return 80% to the, uh, to, to the limited partner investors. Yeah, yeah. Great, uh, great summary for sure. So. Listeners to this show, longtime listeners of this show, we've done something like 500 episodes, will know that private equity is a returning theme on the show. We've had the opportunity to interview lots of entrepreneurs who've sold the private equity, and we've had some tremendous success stories. And it has to be said, some cautionary tales as it relates to selling to private equity. So if you're up for it, I would love to tell you the cautionary tales and just have you comment on maybe what they did wrong in, in doing a deal with private equity. And the view here is that I would love our listeners to kind of know the positive side, but also some of the, the gotchas and some of the things that they need to watch out for if they're going to sell the private equity. Are you up for that? Absolutely. All right, cool. So again, I, I don't want to make this a crap on private equity because we've had some great stories. Uh, Joseph Marshall, uh, we did about six months ago. He got involved in a, in a, in a, in a veterinary clinic roll-up. I think he tripled his money in like a couple of years. So he had a, 
amazing private equity um, uh, outcome. Sarah Dusick, for folks who know the glamping story, again, another she sold. I think they had $3 million of EBITDA. The company went on for uh, a few years and got to like a $100 million valuation. So like there are some amazing success stories. And I think, Adam, you've done an amazing job of, of, of describing when it works, how magical this partnership can be. Uh, that said, there are some 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 uh, other sides of the coin. So Mark Ferrier uh, was a guy who had a marketing agency, and he sold to a private equity group, Onyx Corporation, large uh, private equity group in the kind of Apollo KKR kind of snack bracket, uh, and ultimately rolled 8% of his equity became an investor. Now, in that case, the... The private equity company, um, the the debt was against the platform company, not not Onyx as a group, but just the platform company. So what ended up happening is interest rates rose, the economy went bad, and the mothership, the company that had the debt, couldn't afford to pay it, and ultimately most of the equity was washed out. He rolled 8% and ended up with losing 92% of the value of that. What did he do wrong? So I, I would say that where it started going south is it means that the company was over levered. Um, and, and so when the PE firm bought that company, you know, so, so, so boy, I could just do a whole podcast around you know, what constitutes a good investment versus a bad investment. It's like if I'm an entrepreneur starting a business, you know, I want to focus on a company that supplies needs, not wants, right? You know, why? Because if I'm a needs-based business in an economic downturn, you know, people, whoever my customers are, if it's a need, not a want, they can't forego the expense in its entirety. Um, you know, if my roof is leaking and it's raining outside and the water's falling on my head, I don't care how much money I got, I got to fix my roof one way sure. or another. You know, but if if I'm going out to dinner on Friday night and I want a new sport coat, um, but then I get laid off, uh, I, I don't have to buy a new sport coat. And so I can delay that expense indefinitely and forever. So businesses that are focused on, it could have been a fundamental flaw to start with, with the business itself. It wasn't focused on needs. It was focused on wants. Then you've got differences between recurrent revenue versus non-recurrent revenue, project-based revenue. So many ways a company can go and get in trouble on its own without help. Um, and so, you know, when I think about this as a private equity story, what it tells me is the economy went south and cash flow came under pressure. Interest rates went up. Company can no longer service the debt. What does that mean? Simply, it means there's too much debt. You know, and so the, the company was over levered. And so if I was, you know, call it the rollover investor, we have to yeah. do our diligence, same as we do, as they do when they're buying our company. You know, and so we have to look at it. And we have to ask ourselves, you know, do what would happen to this company if it went into a recession? And what would happen if the interest rates went up? And we have to do our own sensitivity type analysis around understanding when we're a rollover investor, what we're investing in, what does the model look like? And, you know, is it, is it a good risk? And they, they may have answered yes, because no one saw the pandemic coming and no one saw the, the total shutdown of some businesses. And, and so the end result may have been the same. And you, you can't eliminate 100% of all risk in business. So I'll, I'll tell you that there's thousands of PE firms 
And I, I do know the firm you're talking about. There's nothing wrong with the firm. They're good people. Um, but it means that particular investment, when they were modeling the purchase and how much equity versus how much debt, that their model did not contemplate the degree that the market shifted during their whole period. You know, I remember back in 08, 09, you know, the Great Recession, uh, a PE firm that owned my company at the time, they owned an asphalt company in Nevada. And they owned a boat, you know, manufacturing company in Indiana, you know, or an RV company or whatever it was. And, and I'm thinking, okay, there was not a single casino built in Vegas for a five-year period. It's like there was no asphalt, you know, to, to be done. That company went bankrupt. But it would have gone bankrupt whether it was with private equity or not. So at least the people that sold it to private equity got the initial 70% asset diversification. And they lost a rollover investment. So you're talking about, I'm playing with, I'll call it house money. I got most of the wealth out and then the company died. And so I lost 92% of 8%. Okay, I had a bad day, but I did get you know 90 plus percent out. And yeah. the person who got left holding the bag was the limited partners that invested in that PE firm. That was a bad investment. And you know what? When you have a portfolio of investments, they won't all be home runs, and sometimes there will be bad ones. How would a like an individual operator, again, let's imagine our $5 million HVAC guy or gal. Uh, I can't, can't keep coming back to the same example, but I'll do it because it's uh, simple. How would he or she evaluate how much debt <coughs> the private equity company has or is planning to use? I go back to the analogy of the house. You know, if we've got a house, how much equity do we have in the house and how much how much debt do we have in the house? And and then it's, you know, you have to think about then cash flow because we use cash flow to service the debt. And what is the the cash flow to debt coverage ratio? So let me give you a good example. Let's say sure. I buy a a a company that your company, you know, that you just mentioned, it's got a million dollars in EBITDA. 5 million in revenue, I pay five times for it, it's 5 million. So the owner rolls over 30%. And so that's 1.5 million. And I have 3.5 million left that now has to be paid. And so I pay all 300, you know, 3.5 million, I use debt. I borrow all the debt. Let's say the debt's at 10%. So just interest only payment, I'm going to have to pay $350,000 per year to service the debt. Well, if I have a million dollars of EBITDA, million dollars of free cash flow, because it's a CapEx, it's not a CapEx intensive business, so I've got good free cash flow, it's a service business, then I've got a three to one debt coverage ratio, which means that company could probably lose 50% of its revenue, 50% of its earnings, and I still have enough cash flow to service the debt. So it's basic, it's basic understanding of business. And if I don't have that, if I lack the sophistication of that, you know, as a part of my sale process, I want to build a team of professionals who are a lot smarter than me, worth every penny. Let's get a, you know, a great attorney to help me get good terms and conditions in my, my, my purchase and sale agreement. And then let's have good accounting help to help me do the analysis on this type of a question. How do I know it's a good risk? How do I know that the company's not over levered? So that, that, that's a that's a small example right there. You know, in, super, in yeah. that example, three to one debt coverage ratio. Yeah, that's a super helpful example and very simple. Uh, uh, even I get it, which is great. It's a good sign. Um, how would 
and owner demand that information from a buyer? Like, are, are, are they asking for the bank statements? Are they taking their word for it? Like, practically, how are they getting that information? So, so this is, these are great questions, by the way. Um, and unfortunately, what happens is these questions don't usually get asked. The information never is provided. The entrepreneur doesn't know if they're making a good risk or not. So what we're talking about is what I'm going to call pretty advanced thinking to begin with, the fact that we are doing diligence. Because in the 58 co companies that I bought, you know, there's invariably the time where we're, we're in a conference room and we're talking. And, and I, you know, I would ask as the buyer, you know, are there any questions that you'd like to ask us? Crickets. You know, no, 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 just no noise. It's like they don't know what to ask. I don't know what I don't know, and I don't know what to ask. And so, you know, we're talking about advanced concepts where someone actually is asking the right question. So, yes, that's exactly right. If I'm rolling over money in your company, I'd like to see your financial statements. I'd be happy to sign a non-disclosure agreement. I probably already have one in place, but I'm going to need to. I'm going to need more info. You want me to be a rollover investor in your company? I, I'm going to have to have info in order to make an informed decision. And depending on the amount or the size of the business, sometimes the PE folks will look at you and white, you know, rub their nose and just like, hey, I'm a billion dollar company. You're a $5 billion company. You want to see my financials? Not happening. You know, you want my money or not? You know, so they'll strong arm, you know, they'll try to strong arm. But, you know, I, I've, I've done plenty of deals, you know, just in the last few years where entrepreneur sells a company for $150 million and they're rolling over $30 million. That's not chump change. Matter of fact, outside of the PE firm, they're going to become the largest single shareholder of the company. And so it's like, I want the same level of diligence done on you that was done on me. So if you want to get in my data room, I need to get in your data room and I want to see your financial statements. I want to understand your debt. And if I'm not a sophisticated business person, I'm going to hire somebody to help me go through their books and understand whether or not I'm taking a good risk. And I'm going to see the debt on the balance sheet of the company. Sure. Correct. Absolutely. So financial statements, there's a balance sheet, there's a profit and loss statement, but really you're zeroing in on the debt line item on a balance sheet. Sure. Yeah. And, and what are the terms around that debt? It's not just the fact they have it, How but what's the interest debt? rate? You know, what's the servicing? You know, and most of most PE type deals, um, there's a nominal amount of principal that has to be paid because the company's going to be sold in five years. Um, you know, it's going to be totally recapped and the debt will be fully paid off. And so there's minimal, you know, I'll call it principal service, mostly interest coverage. And, and so I can, I, I, you know, I'm a sophisticated guy who's been in the industry for decades, but I wasn't when I started and I didn't know any of this stuff until, you know, 20 years rolled by and, you know, not, not now I do. So I can, I can partner with someone, I can hire a consultant, I, I can work with someone to help me evaluate the health of the business that's buying me. And, uh, and so I, I would say, like all things in life, there are good, you know, there's good firms out there, there's great firms, there's bad firms, you know, and there's, there's, uh, there's awful firms. And so I need to do my diligence around who my buyer is, if I'm becoming a rollover investor. If I'm not a rollover investor, I probably don't care you know, as much. I just, you know, cash it closed. That's, that's you know, it's going to get wired to me and then I don't have to worry. <laughs> Two more scenarios and I'll let you go. Uh, Lloyd Lobo, three months ago, did an interview with him, had a great exit to a private equity group. He's a, 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 a very passionate, very big personality kind of guy. A very classic sort of entrepreneurial guy when I interviewed him. And 
And it wasn't long after he sold and became a rollover investor that he started to clash with the new owners. And in part, he was just not a, I think in his own admission, not able to let go. He he kind of liked being the, the the king of the castle, and and when he had overlords to basically report to, he just it just blew his mind. He just wasn't able to operate in that context. He became disruptive and not a really good contributor to the company. And ultimately, the private equity acquirer made the decision to let him go as the CEO. He continued to be an owner in the yes. former you know rollover investor, but he was let go. And it occurs to me, you know. This is probably more frequent than than just Lloyd Lobo in the sense that what you've described in this model is you're looking for people who want to play nice in the sandbox. They want to roll over some, they want to keep running the business. They want to go from five to 14, have the second, third bite of the apple, whatever. But part of that is leading the organic change improvements being willing to raise the prices on your customers, pivoting to a new line of product, all these things that for an entrepreneur, strong-willed, clear vision can oftentimes be really hard for them to take. So you just touched on something. Let me give you what the actual statistic is. The last statistic I saw on this said there is a 73% chance that if you sell your business to a private equity you know, firm, you will not survive the five-year hold period. 73% That's crazy. failure rate. But now let's break it down, okay? Uh -huh. So some subset of that 73% plan to retire anyway. I'm 70 years old. I sold my company. It was a one-and-done event for me. I'm not, you know, I'm not, not going to be you know, around. And so a portion of that is, is, you know, just simply it was planned that way. You have another then big portion where you know, I, I call it the accidental arrogance of success and wealth. And so you just gave me a wheelbarrow full of gold. I just won the Super Bowl. I don't feel like working very hard anymore. And I check out. And so the PE firm, you know, just gave me all this money. They haven't earned a dime. And they're not expecting me to retire. They're expect on the job. They're expecting me to go back to spring training and win another Super Bowl next year. And so, you know, there's some percentage of, of entrepreneurs who just decide, I don't want to work very hard anymore. I've got 30 million in the bank and yeah, screw it. You know, and so, you know, there's a, a big percentage of that. Smaller percentage of people who really dig in and, and ultimately just find out that, that it's beyond their capability. And so what usually will happen is when it's a first time transitioning owner, um, who's who used to be an owner and is now going to be working with a private equity firm? The, the, they'll hire people like me, you know, to be the old Gomer board guy, you know, who holds their hand and walks them through and helps them understand what this new game is going to look like, and and help help them kind of keep their their head screwed on straight, um, so that they can be you know successful and they can be one of the twenty seven percent who do make it through the whole period. And so I, I would say. Those are kind of the buckets. Small percentage decided I was retired anyway. You knew that. We we agreed to part ways. That's some of the 73%. Half just flame out because they just became rich and they don't want to work hard. And they don't they don't get that their partner hasn't made a dime. And all those hockey stick projections you sold them on, they expect you to hit now. 
you know, and you got to work hard to do that. And so I call private equity, when you're a private equity backed portfolio company CEO, this is the epitome of business as a professional sport. You just joined an NBA team and you got to practice and you got to practice hard. Michael Jordan still went to practice. Kobe Bryant still went to practice. They got pissed off when other prima donnas decided they didn't need to practice. You know, it's like you win as a team. And so there's, there's a, you know, I call it the accidental arrogance of success and wealth. And there's some people listening to that saying, hey, man, if you wanted to invest in my business as a minority shareholder, that's fine. You can do that and I'll hold the bag, right? And I'll try to get a return. I'll stay in the driver's seat. But you guys bought the business. You own the business. It's your business. If, you know, like if I choose to check out, that's my discretion. Very few companies, PE firms out there that will take minority positions. And so the, the money to buy companies is coming out of a, a class of PE funds called buyout funds. And the vast majority of buyout funds by their very charter, their prospectus, you know, they say we will buy a controlling stake. So if you say as an entrepreneur selling, I just want to sell a minority stake, you just wiped out 90% of all buyout funds on the planet. And so your pool of potential investors has gotten very small. The amount of multiples that are going to be paid for that minority investment are going to be very different than what a control and a buyout investor is going to uh, uh, pay for that business. And even if you get, get one, you're going to have a shareholder rights agreement that's going to give that minority investor a bunch of rights and a bunch of control anyway because they have to return capital at some point to their limited partners. And so you still aren't calling the shots. But doesn't it get frustrating for the entrepreneur who, who, who says, look, you're trying to have your cake and eat it too, Mr. Or Mrs. Private Equity Group. You bought the business. You want to control, you got control. It's your business, right? You got yeah. it. Yeah. You bought it. Run it. I'll be your CEO, but like, don't pretend you're a, you're like a, 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 a sort of investor who gets to kind of swoop in and yeah. provide an opinion. Well, well but you know what? I, 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 you, what you're saying is really true and it happens every day. You know, so I, I, I call that, you know, it's, it's like you got to learn how to play nice with others. You have to understand <laughs> that you have a partner now and that partner. But most entrepreneurs old. don't, right? Like they, they don't. They've been doing this for 30 years and they don't play nice with other people in the sandbox. Like I don't. You know, so I, I always tell people I have a love-hate relationship with private equity myself. I love paydays. I, you know what? I, I love it when it's wire day and we just got done with a five-year run. And six months ago, I might have told the partner to... F this or, you know, kiss that, you know, and but now the battle's over. We won the Super Bowl. The wires are hitting. And, you know, you can see, you know, maybe not off camera. It's like I've got my watch winder going back. I got a bunch of PE watches, PE Rolexes rolling around over here that are hallmarking all of these great, you know, great outcomes that I've had in my career. And you know what? It, it's tough. It is tough. And it, that's why I say it, it's like business is a professional sport. I mean, it's intense, you know, that's and great you know, I, I've been a CEO for 21 years for nine different private equity sponsors. They didn't all go great. And even the great ones sometimes had dark days. And so we as a, as an entrepreneur who just gave up control, we have to recognize that 
that there's going to be tough periods and, and not every day is a golden day. And I don't like it when, you know, a, a 25 year old snot nose, you know, uberly brilliant person from some Ivy League school is trying to tell me with 30 years of operational experience how the hell to run my company. You know, not happening, you know. And so it's like you got to be able to have a thick skin to deal with the human personality, you know, kind of conflicts that that can arise in this kind of a situation. But if you can learn how to adapt and play along, you know, I'm saying there is tremendous wealth creation that can be had. Sounds like it. Who's harder to work for, Jack Welsh at GE or a partner to private equity group? So <clears throat> good question, because it you know, would depend on the circumstances. Uh, and you're about the only guy on the planet yeah. that would know the answer to yeah. this question. <laughs> so I, I would tell you, I, I loved um, Jack Welsh. You know, I admired Jack Welsh. I respected Jack Welsh. Um, but I also admire and respect most of the senior PE partners and people that I work with. Occasionally, I'd run into somebody who just made partner, and they don't really know their ass from a hole in the ground, and they're, they're, they're learning. And I'm trying to help them learn. And sometimes I'm learning at their expense and sometimes they're learning at my expense. So I'm the first to recognize that, you know, hey, when I didn't have good outcomes in my career, you know, I was as much to blame as anybody else was. You know, so, you know, we all head into a, uh, We put a team together. We take the field and we all start out with the intent of winning the Super Bowl. But not everybody wins the Super Bowl. And sometimes teams just pour, play badly and we have to mix it up. And it's like, you know, it's like this team just didn't get the job done. And I got a, I got a responsibility to my shareholders or my investors and I've got to, I got to mix up the team. Right. So it's like sometimes you see the same pitcher, you know, go from one baseball team to another. You know, that's the CEO going from this team to another. It's like didn't work out over here. Home run over there. It's like they won the, they won the title. So it, it's, uh, it, you didn't answer my question. Who's tougher, Jack Welsh or the PE guy partner? Um, Jack Welsh was tough, but when, yeah. but when you performed, boy, did you feel good. So I, I would say a little, uh, who's tougher? Um, the legend of Jack is tough. That's tough. You know, so I, boy, I, I can't, I'm having a hard time calling the ball here. Yeah. I'd say that working with PE, nine different firms that was tougher and the reason it's tougher is because jack knew his business jack knew 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 his people and a pe firm who owns 50 companies you know those partners you know maybe working with eight or nine different teams and they're they're, they are doing some fly by night you know it's like i look at a powerpoint deck I, i make a very quick snap decision on what i think a problem is and I blow in at a board meeting and I bark my orders and then I go back out of town and it's like, and I'm sitting there thinking, this guy doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. You know, and you know, after at my age, I know what I'm talking about. You know, and so I'd, I'd say it's harder. It is harder for from a PE perspective because there's more personalities at play. Jack is Jack, you know, and partners and mid-levels and, you know, associates and, you know, and I'd say that it was, it was tougher. It was tougher, but please don't don't get it wrong. You know, my books, I defend, you know, private equity, you know, from the crap that people hear on on TV, because first of all, TV news only tells you bad stories. And, you know, there are times where, you know, a, a company's about to go under and a PE firm swoops in and buys it up and breaks it up. And, you know, that's a distressed asset fund. That's not what every fund is. But, you know, if, if that company failed, you know, PE guys, 
don't go into an investment saying, I'm going to lose money. They go in there thinking, I'm going to double the S&P 500. And so I'm going to pull a rabbit out of the hat and I'm going to make it work. And sometimes I got to dig in harder than others. You know, I'm saying that in general, if you know how to pick a partner and, uh, and, and you, you understand the game, you know, you, boy, you, you can make tremendous wealth by working with a good PE firm. And I think that's a perfect way to end this conversation. I am so grateful to you, Adam. I mean, I think it's been a real treat for me. I've watched you and, I, you know, the books are amazing. The Private Equity Playbook, the Exit Strategy Playbook, and Empire Builder uh, available anywhere you buy books. Uh, where can people reach out and say hi on social? I know LinkedIn's a big place for you, but is there a better place? No, that's the best place. I'm on LinkedIn every day. And I will tell you that as my books get wider, you know, call it distribution around the world. It's like, I'm getting at times a thousand inbound inquiries a day, but it's me. I don't have a team of people on social media. I try really hard to engage with those who seek to engage with, with me. Um, So, so LinkedIn is best. Um, You know, that's just the simplest, you know, email is almost a disaster. You know, at at this point, there's thousands of them coming in and, most of them are crap and you know, it's hard to get through to the real ones at times. And if I'm busy on the road for a few days, God, I, I go to my inbox is like 3,255 emails waiting for me. Um, but so I'd say LinkedIn, I'm on every day, multiple times a day. And, uh, and I am engaging with uh, as many, many people out there as I, as I can. And we'll put Adam's LinkedIn profile in the show notes at builttosellit.com. Adam, thanks for doing this. Hey, thanks for having me, John. I appreciate it. I hope your listeners uh, enjoyed the ride. I bet you they did. And there you have it for today's interview between John and Adam. If you enjoyed today's podcast, then be sure to hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And if you want to help support Built to Sell Radio, I'd encourage you to share this episode out with a friend or colleague. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, including definitions for some of the more technical terms that you may not be familiar with, you can find all of those at Adam's episode page over at builttosell.com. Also, if you know of someone who'd be a great fit to be a guest right here on the show, you can actually nominate them by heading over to builttosell.com slash nominate. There you'll have the chance to nominate yourself or someone else to be a guest right here on the show with John. Some of our best guests have come from nominations, and we highly encourage you to nominate someone if you know of an exited founder. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling today's audio engineering, and thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisors are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, be sure to visit valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan, and we'll talk to you again next week.